Hey everyone, Kao Chivasio back with another video for you today. So in today's video we have Dave Lee coming on the channel. In this part of the three-part series we're going to talk about how Dave started to go into investing the green pastures, the apps, Tesla. We're also going to talk about how he looks for his next 10x, 100x investment and we're also going to talk about Stripe in this part. In the next couple of parts we're going to talk about Square, Lemonade, the genomic revolution and obviously maybe look inside his portfolio. So stay tuned for that. But as of now, enjoy the interview. So first up we have, I, well, obviously the beginning, what, what kickstarted your, your investment passion or, or interest? Because I know you started building apps at first. Mm -hmm. um, so let's first start maybe with, with, the, with the start, with the, with the apps. Um, I know it started when, when Apple launched their, their iPhone, then you went into something that you like to call the green pasture. So yep. well, I want to hear a bit more about, about that. Yeah. So, um, I mean, most of my investing journey actually goes way before that. So, um, in, when I was maybe about 11 years old, I got introduced to stocks in one of my classes and we had the stock competition where you had to go to the newspaper and pick kind of a selection of stocks and track it over a few months and whoever wins the, the whoever gains the most, you know, wins the competition. Yeah. And that fascinated me. And I started to read the business section of the new, of the newspaper almost every day. In, in high school, I started to get fascinated with business. And actually, this is the first time I've actually, I think shared this publicly, but um, I fast, one of my fascinations was I was listening to this business talk radio show. And, the, and people would call in with all these business problems and situations and a little bit investing. But when I was probably between the ages of 14 and 17, I listened to this probably three hours a day, just constantly, almost every night, I would listen to this business talk radio show. And I was just fascinated about business. Um, I joined a, a, a club in my school called Future Business Leaders of America. Mm -hmm. And it's a competition where we go to different place contests and we would formulate a business right on the spot and compete. Like they would give us maybe an industry or something. And then we would formulate a business plan and a model and, and present it. Um, and I wanted to go into business um, for college, but everyone I talked to said, oh, it's better to major in something different in undergrad and later business. And so I got into, um, I majored in political economics at UC Berkeley. I started to, you know, I spent uh, six months abroad in Korea and learning about uh, East Asia politics and economics and how these Asian countries were able to grow from dirt poor countries into yeah. these huge economies. And I started to understand the dynamics between government and economics and business and all these other factors. After college, um, this is like 90, um, after, actually after grad school, um, I was back in the States. I went to grad school overseas and I came back to the States in 99. Um, I, um, my dad had given me $5,000. Um, um, actually it might've been $10,000 to invest. Now my parents kind of very just, uh, they come from very poor background. They were just like, you know, dirt poor. I grew up in this very financially oppressive, uh, household. So I, I never got allowance or anything. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so this is almost like the first time ever, you know, my parents actually yeah. you know, gave something and they actually didn't, you know, you know, um, support me at all uh, much before that or after, but I took that 10,000 and I started to put it in the stock market. And this was during the internet boom. Okay. And I saw, I saw potential. I'm like, I, I got really into the internet to understand the dynamics and I grew, I grown up in Silicon Valley. So I had seen the progress and I knew that in 1999, my, my, I, I had this realization. I'm like, I think Silicon Valley is going to be the, the center of the world in, in terms of the, the, the trends for the next 20, 30 years. And back in 99, that was like, that was kind of crazy because Silicon Valley was just this tiny place. And I started to see what the internet is doing is going to be the biggest change in our lifetime. So I started to invest into Yahoo and, and all these other companies. And I saw my portfolio grow. And my philosophy back then was every doubling of my portfolio, I would take half off and give it to charitable purposes. So I saw my portfolio grow from 10 to 20,000, took off 5,000, right? From 15, and it went up to 30,000. I took off another 5,000 mm-hmm. and it went up to me 40,000 within a year. So 10 to 40,000 within a year. Um, and then the dot-com crash happened <laughs> and yeah. it just tanked. And I was just like, oh my gosh. And my portfolio went down to $10,000. Um, and this was after, you know, taking out 10, but I pulled all the, all the investments and I said, forget it. You know, this is too unstable. I don't know what I'm doing with the stock market. Um, I shifted, um, that was kind of like a hobby. And my big actually passion at that time was um, helping the poor, helping the kind of the underprivileged, helping those stuck in mental illness and addiction and poverty. And so I started to dedicate my time full-time to helping people both locally and also overseas. And so I formed a nonprofit and started to find out the biggest needs in different countries and locally started to do what I could do. And I was just focused head down on that. And I just didn't have much interest in business or investing per se. I was like, I need to just, there's so many needs, you know, locally and around the world. And the thing is after three or four years of doing this, I, I started to, you know, I'm traveling to all these countries in the world and I'm starting to see immense poverty, but I see huge business activity from entrepreneurs and just people on the street and vibrant economies together with this crazy, you know, poverty, but the vibrant economy is growing so fast. And I'm like starting to see investment opportunities. I'm like, oh my gosh, if I had capital, I could just, you know, be investing in businesses. And this is an amazing opportunity. And all the while I'm doing this nonprofit, I'm struggling to find donations, you know, I'm Mm -hmm. living a a bare uh, existence, right. Um, With my own living expenses. And um, this just feels so just doesn't make sense at all, you know? (laughs) And so I started to um, dive into the bookstore for seven years during this period. I started to read business books and investing books. Um, I probably read a few thousand of these business and investing books. And I started to get a sense of what everything was about. I started to get a sense, ah, this is what I understand the essence of business and I understand the, the essence of investing. And um, in 2007, that's when I got married and I told my wife, hey, let's spend a year um, just uh, looking for a, a lifetime approach to business and investing, something we could really get behind. 
And that's when I, I started to, you know, formulate kind of my own strategies and look around. And I wasn't happy with almost anything I saw. Everything I saw was so traditional. <laughs> right? I was like, okay, I, I did a deep dive into Jim Cramer and that money. I'm like, read all of his books. I'm like, this guy is just, I don't know, just, it's just too traditional. I just, I, I don't see it tapping into the essence of business and investing because what I've seen, what I know is investing and business is exponential and growth, but none of the investing paradigms out there were exponential. It was, they were all incremental saying, oh, 8% gains, 10% gains. If you're lucky, 15% gains. Yeah. Everything was just so incremental. I'm like, I don't think people are getting it. I think something is missing. And so I actually had to come up with my own philosophy. Um, you know, I, I call it green pastures investing where I, I say, hey, you know, let's put our resources into the greenest pastures. And just like sheep, they will reproduce. And if you are taking your sheep to the greenest pastures and everyone else is stuck near the city, near these barren pastures, because everyone there's too crowded by the city, you're going to grow faster. You're going to have uh, faster exponential growth. And so that led to my um, first big move, which is the app store. And we started um, a software company uh, making apps. Um, and that provided capital to, it, it posed a problem. We started to have savings that was growing and I didn't want to stick into an incremental kind of preservation investment because I felt like there was too many needs in the world. We were too young. Like we didn't have to worry about retirement at this age. We had some other assets. So I'm like, we need to really go for it. Look at what's the potential behind investing. Mm -hmm. So I, I knew it was exponential. I knew I had to do something exponential. I couldn't find it. I spent two or three years looking. Finally came across Tesla in 2012 with Elon Musk, did a deep dive into Tesla, into Elon for six months, started to invest all of our business savings into Tesla over, over a period of about six months. Um, and then it was like a waiting game. It was like just waiting for Tesla to, you know, deliver to, for the company to, to prove themselves. And so that's kind of the background, I think, of most of my investment journey. All right. No, I think it's, it's pretty incredible that you, you saw the App Store, the whole App Store ecosystem way before the masses actually saw it, um, which is also going, obviously, helped you invest in, in Tesla when you did in 2012, I think. So back then, and looking at it right now, why, why is it that nobody actually wanted to invest in, in Tesla back then? Like, what's, what's the big reason? Everybody said Tesla, no way. Yeah. Um, so, so here's a, here's a concept I'll, I'll toss out is, is I don't think people are looking for exponential investing opportunities. I just think it's, it's just in a way you find what you look for. So if you're looking for something, that's what you're going to find over time. What, like, and it's so important what you define, what's, what goal do you have? What are you searching for? What problem are you solving? For me, my problem was exponential investment and growth. Um, when people typically get introduced to investing, people don't talk about this. They think exponential growth is risky. It's too risky. Um, and they think it's just a lottery. You have to just guess whatever companies, right? Mm -hmm. And no one has a way to figure it out. And for me, it just didn't seem right because I'm like, everything I know about business and investing, the the great companies, they stand out. You know, <laughs> it's like, it's, it's you, sure, you could make mistakes, but um, to say that you can't pick a great company, it just didn't make any sense at all. And I think with when going to Tesla and also let's say the App Store, 
If you are looking for green pastures, meaning if you are looking to exponentially grow your sheep, your resources,、um, I think you would have caught the App Store if you were you know, watching the App, Apple Story, because that's something you're looking for. But if you're not looking for exponential growth, then you look at the App Store and you're like, oh, okay, whatever. Just, you know, you don't see it. The way that perhaps what your brain is looking for, you know?、Yeah. Um, same thing with, with Tesla. You know, if I wasn't looking for ex- exponential growth,、um, if I didn't, like, we had a, a, a growing savings from our business, and I was like so against mediocre returns. I was adamantly against it. And there was like, my wife was like, Put it into some interest bearing account. I'm like, no, we need to find exponential, you know, something that just really can grow this doubling, doubling at a reasonable, as, at a, at a, at a,、um, in a sh- short enough period of time. I'm not looking, talking about doubling in just like six months, but hey, doubling every two or three years or something, just, you know, better than doubling every 10 years or 15、yeah. years.、Um, and because I was looking for that, it helps me to parse, it helped me to parse through all of the, Mediocre and above average opportunities. Because when you're searching for something, A, an opportunity comes up and you get, in, you get、uh, engaged and you think, oh, maybe this is it. But you, if you don't know what you're searching for, you have a hundred things that tempt you and confuse you. But for me, I'm thinking, A, exponential, man. I need this you know, double, 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 10x in whatever, five or 10 years. So, Um, if it doesn't meet that criteria, I'm passing, 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 passing. So I'm passing by hundreds of opportunities because I'm searching for something. So when, when Elon Musk comes about with electric cars in the multi, you know, possibly trillion dollar industry, that it's obvious it's going to electrification. The question is A, this is exponential possibility. The only question is do they have what it takes? Does Elon Musk in his strategy, does Tesla in their product superiority, right? And the execution, do they have what it takes to be, be the big winner in this field? So it's a whole different paradigm of looking at things. And I think、um, it's obvious to me the traditional investing world, they have to miss out on Tesla in the early days because it, it goes against everything that traditional investing world stands for preservation, you know, mediocre gains, right? Just、uh, safety, all this stuff. They're not looking for exponential gains, right?、Um, And yeah, it's, it it's basically comes down to you find what you search for, right? Yeah. I think that's also why ARK Invest, Cathy Woods are outperforming all those people. They're actually looking for those exponential growth. And back then, I think people were maybe comfortable with those 8% each and every year. So when you're comfortable, you're not really looking, how can I grow even more? How can I gain even, even more wealth over time? Yeah, I think also what's interesting is、um, it's the democratization of information and investing. Where before, let's say 10 years ago, the, the investing world is pretty much predominantly you know, dictated by big institutions. And their business model is, is management. You know, they're, they're taking management, the whole mutual fund world and everything, even ETFs, it's like management fees, right? And so if you're, Business models, management fees, you want people to give you money to you. You have to give them a reason. You say, hey, we have more information, we have more knowledge, we could protect your money better, et cetera. But what's happened in the past 10 years is this, there's been a massive dissemination and access to information in a way where people are thinking, wait a minute, is that 
the best we could do, 8% a year. And is the best we could do is a mutual fund with 50 different companies. That I, don't, I don't even know. Do I want to be invested in Bank of America and Shell and, and BP and, you know, uh, GE? And like people are, they, they start, they're starting to see things. And they go, wait a minute, why can't I be invested in these amazing companies, you know, that are changing the world right now? And I know they're going to grow. And so there's been a massive revolution just within, you know, even just the past several years. Yeah. And I think now you're starting to see stories of people say, who are owning that and who have lived that for the past 10 years and who are showing massive gains that are can't compare with traditional markets. And it's starting to become you know, interesting. It's an interesting story. I think we're still in the early innings of this whole thing. Um, but those who can pick out the, the truly the big winners, um, they're going to see massive, massive gains in their portfolio. And it's not even going to be... a it's, you can't even compare, you know, to the preservation-focused traditional investing model. Yeah, no, for sure. I want to touch back on, on this 10x, 100x point because that's something a lot, a lot of the viewers have, have asked: is how do you how do you go to work to find those next 100x or 10x or two times 10x, which is basically the the, the same yeah. thing? That was one thing. Question number one: people wa wanted to know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. It comes down to like first off, I, I, I actually would have been surprised by by Tesla. I was hoping for a 10x for 10 uh, for you know the first 10 years and another 10x for the next 10 years. So 100x for me has come kind of early, earlier than I expected. Um, but I think there is actually um, some temptation to want to get you know a doubling or 5x, 10x super quick, and I think. The more you do that, like I think there is a role for that, and you need, um, I think, to be to have higher risk tolerance, maybe a, a smaller basket of play money where yeah. you could trade and etc. For me, my bulk of my investments kind of approaches, yeah, I want to feel confident where I could track the company. I have a competitive edge over other investors or funds and the general public. So I want to have intimate knowledge of this company to the point where I feel like just people don't get what they're doing, right? Um, and so what I'm doing is I'm looking for the best of the best. And a lot of it is, for example, in the fintech space, there's a lot of interesting companies coming out. And I actually you know, do a lot more research than I share in my videos because a lot of what I consider myself as I consider myself more first as an investor. So a lot of times videos are time consuming to package it, everything. Yeah. So for example, I'll go through, let's say a SoFi or I'll go through, you know, different, you know, new companies out there. I'm doing a deep dive into the DeFi decentralized finance space right now, but I'm going through the stuff and um, sometimes it seems interesting. I'm like, Hey, kind of interesting company. Like for example, SoFi, I'm like, yeah, you know, I kind of see their model um, and I, I've taken kind of a, a small exploratory position on this because I, mean, I want to look deeper into it. But one of the things that usually kind of stops me from progressing is I compare it to who I think might be the best of the best in that field. And Stripe. so, yeah, when I compare it to Stripe, I just, I just lose, I just, I just lose I don't want to say interest, but it's it's just sometimes when you find a company that's that's so just 
so stinking just like good with ex- execution and their product and everything. Um, it makes it, it kind of, it, it makes like, you know, it's like comparing Tesla to, you know, I want to say GM, but maybe comparing Tesla to BMW. It's like without Tesla, a BMW is a great car. You're like, Hey, you know, BMW driving around fine. Mercedes, Audi, right. You know, that's fine. But once you have that Tesla, then it's like, Oh my gosh, like, uh, BMW sucks. Right. <laughs> so with like in FinTech, it's like, yeah. Um, who is the best of the best? So that's my big question. Every time I, I analyze a company, I'm like, who is the best of the best in this category? And um, I need to find that out and I need to compare all the companies to that best of the best. And that's kind of how I look at things. Um, sometimes the best of the best though, it's it their value too high to, to get that 10X within five or 10 years. Uh, maybe you can in this kind of new environment where I don't know how people are really valuing things anymore, but um, yeah. So my hope is, for example, with Stripe, um, I'm trying to get in private equity, like in the pre-IPO phase, but it's extremely hard. It's probably the most difficult company to get into right now. And um, I just, I just, my, my strategy is I can get in under hundred billion. I think this is going to 1 trillion in t- within 10 years. Um, I think they are the dominant player stripe. Um, and, uh, my problem is I don't think I'll be able to get in right now under 100 billion. So, I mean, yeah. Anyways, that's kind of some of the, the thought process, you know, of mm-hmm. how I see it. Um, yeah. Looking right. for 10 X's. No, obviously I wanted to talk about stripe. Um, I think last time they got val- valuation was, I think at $70 billion or so. So they are probably going to go public with a 100 or maybe even more. Uh, which which probably sucks for for uh, retail investors, but be, like if you want to talk a bit more ab- about Stripe and what makes them like the number one over companies like SoFi, Square, like from what I understood, maybe a little bit is that like Unity, for example, SoFi also offers all those those APIs. If you want to create this, if you want to create that, they already offer that, which makes it so much easier for people to start a business, start a subscription model, etc. Maybe obviously you can uh, explain a bit more about why Stripe is probably the number one in that space. Yeah, um, there's a lot of factors going on with Stripe, um, and part of it is, I mean, I could I'll share as some angles I think that people mm-hmm. haven't maybe heard of because some other angles angles they can find out more easily. So I'll, I'll share some things I think is difficult to find um, that gives some value. Um, Stripe is is fascinating because they're um, they're one of the most loved companies in the in the developer community for for uh, the past decade, and developers are super smart. They are the guys who and the gals who are coding stuff. They are on the bleeding edge of technology, and running a software company for over a decade myself, you start to see. The difference is if there is a company that provides a far superior product, they get the outsized share of the market. And then you start to see how they operate, how they manage their products, how they improve them, what areas they go into. So I'm looking at it from a software kind of developer Mm -hmm. perspective. What I'm seeing is Stripe nailed it almost 10 years ago with their first APIs. Developers just fell in love with Stripe. And then for the last 10 years, they've actually kept that love 
of the product from their developers by expanding their current set of products, but expanding into new different product areas. And when I look at it from a software developer perspective, there aren't a ton of companies that have been able to do what Stripe has done in terms of how loved they are from the developer perspective. Um, that's one angle. Um, and for a lot of people, that's going to be hard to grasp because they're just not looking at it from a software developer perspective. Yeah. But if they know a software developer, they should probably ask that person, hey, what do you think of Stripe? How are they different than every any other company out there? Um, and Stripe is just leaps and bounds. They're just, everything they do, they just do it far better. It's just far simpler. They, they make complex things super simple for the developer um, to do. Um, anything financial. And um, the second thing is Stripe probably has the most ambitious goals in fintech out there. Um, I know Square has ambitious goals. You know, SoFi, lots of these companies want to be the vertically integrated, you know, full financial right, services provider for customers and businesses. But Stripe goes beyond that. They're just like, they're crazy. These guys are super ambitious. They want like, they want to help people start their own businesses. So they have a kind of this automated, you know, corporation uh, uh, service that they provide. Mm -hmm. They want um, uh, um, customers to, to make it easier to run their entire businesses. So they have a, a new pl a platform they're developing to kind of uh, see operations and to analyze analytics and to see where they could, you know, do better um, decision-making. They actually have a banking API. Um, and that's one of the reasons with SoFi, they have Galileo, they, this banking yeah. API, which they're, they're touting, but I mean, that's great until you see what Stripe is doing and, and their API, they're making the APIs for the biggest banks in the world. They want to be the financial infrastructure for the entire kind of financial world that even the biggest banks in the world use their APIs. That's Stripe's ambition. Um, and they're, they're moving so fast. And another angle is this, is Stripe has probably one, probably the smartest engineers out there um, in terms of financial space. And the engineers are happy at Stripe. I mean, this is really hard to do. These A lot of times with, your, with engineers, they're in a company, but they don't really like it because it's really difficult to fully utilize a thousand or you know thousands of engineers who are really, really smart. You get them into these mediocre mundane tasks and management doesn't communicate well. And it's just like people like, ah, oh, whatever, right? Um, like for example, I had a friend who was working at Twitter and he was like complaining mm. about Twitter all day long, you know, how poorly running it is, <laughs> all this stuff as an engineer. But I mean, that's typical, like engineers, you know, for them to be ec ecstatic about a company and how it's run internally, that's really rare, but that's the norm at Stripe is these engineers go into Stripe, they're like, whoa, man, I'm super impressed by how they execute, how they communicate, the ambitious goals, how I'm involved with challenging products. Um, that type of company, um, yeah, it doesn't come along very often. Yeah. And then you have certain people who are insiders. Like for example, there's this guy, Paul Graham from Y Combinator. Uh, it's a Silicon Valley incubator mm -hmm. and they incubated Airbnb and Dropbox and hundreds yeah. of other companies. And Paul Graham is one of the biggest fans of Stripe. He thinks it's going to be huge and he doesn't publicly come out in, in favor or in support of many companies. There's probably a good four or five that he's really staked his, you know, claim to or his reputation to over the years. And one was Facebook when it was at IPO'd and it was, he had tanked a bit. Everyone was hating on Facebook and Paul Graham 
stood up and he says, guys, you, you guys don't understand Facebook. They can flip on the revenue switch, you know, <laughs> whenever they want to, yeah. this is going to be a, a massive machine. And um, that was one, one time. Another time was Tesla. 2012, he's like, Tesla is like, can't compare this car. They've redefined everything. Um, um, and he, he really likes Airbnb and he really likes Stripe, right? There's a good, and he, there's a few others, but um, he's seen, you know, hundreds and hundreds of companies, but there are certain companies that stick out um, when you're an incubator like that. But I can go on for a long time on these like intangibles, right? And mm -hmm. if, you, if you see the interviews for these founders, you see how differently they think. They are not long-term, they are ultra long-term, yeah. like beyond anything normal. They are just extreme. Um, but yeah, and the, the difficult part of Stripe is they don't have their financials public because they're a private company. So it's hard to know exactly what their growth is, but you could gauge kind of what's happening because you can see their competitors and you see their what type of products they're offering and stuff like that. But um, yeah, if Stripe goes public this year, I just hope it stays under 200 billion. I mean, this yeah, this company is crazy, yeah. Because no, I've read also some rumors that they might be a SPAC merging with them and take them on the public market. Don't remember which one it was, which yeah. could be helpful if we want to enter earlier. But on the other side, what if they don't merge with that SPAC? You're left with investing in just a, a blank check company. But yeah, I, I really hope uh, Stripe goes yeah. public under $200 billion. So at least you can 5-6x that investment in the next couple of years, 10 years, yeah. maybe. Yeah, I mean, nothing's guaranteed, but you know, it's all about odds. Um, yeah, people have been rumoring the SPAC with Bill Ackman's like yeah. Pershing Square, right, right? Uh, SPAC, I think it's PSTH, um, which is ridiculous. And here's the thing, like, I mean, okay. When I come up, like, there's some things that are just ridiculous and they still get traction because people believe in this stuff. Like the Stripe CEO even came on a thread saying that they're not going, you know, pu public with this back. He actually came on this thread saying this is ridiculous. Yes, people still believe in it, right? Yeah. And it's common sense. Stripe is the number one private company in the entire world. It's there's it's Stripe and, and SpaceX. And Those SpaceX, are the yeah. two major ones. Stripe is even more difficult to get into than SpaceX. I mean, people don't understand what the demand is for Stripe right now. And Stripe and their long thinking um, founders, they're not trying to rush to the market. There's no reason for them to do a SPAC, right? They're not trying to, you know, IPO and cash out. There's, there's absolutely no reason. There's some reason where after they can get kind of, you know, decent, let's say, close to profitability and they can see, uh, you know, some future growth where they could open up the to public markets because, mm -hmm. you know, they can give liquidity to their employees. Um, there might not be that much downside. They could, you know, they could see, you know, some more upside uh, long-term. And when they do that, you know, they're going IPO directly. They're doing it. They're not going to involve a SPAC, which involves trying to partner. They're, they don't need to partner with the company to help them go IPO. This is going to be one of the biggest IPOs ever in the history of the, in the history of the financial markets. And, and they don't, it's, it's just completely, yeah, it, it doesn't make any sense to us back. And, and I've said this before and um, we'll see, um, but yeah, this is something that is, it's fairly obvious to me. Yeah. Um, uh, Stripe goes IPO on their own terms and um, yeah, 
they know that's what they're doing. Yeah, no, I think people are way into this packing game right now, which Shamat's packing every company yeah. he, he, he sees. Um, I, I believe there is like a little spec bubble right now because like every day I see another rumor, this company is going to merge with this pack, this pack. I'm like, whoa, I mean, whoa. since when are people like looking for specs? Like if a company wants to IPO, they'll probably IPO on their own unless maybe there's something shady going on and they really want to go into the public market. Don't want to point any fingers to Nicola, but yeah. that's a pr prime, prime example. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's two sides to this. One side is, I think what Uber and some other companies showed is, Hey, you can not IPO for a long time, delay mm -hmm. your IPO and just use private funding and it could be okay. Um, and so I think a lot of startups kind of had that mentality of, Hey, we're not going to IPO in a super long time because profitability is still far out. So we're going to use the private markets and then with the rising markets and the valuations people are getting in the public markets is starting to change some of these startups mentality where they're thinking, wait a minute, if we go IPO, we can actually maybe raise funds at a higher valuation. People get liquidity. Maybe there's more positives to that. And so there's been a massive shift where these private companies who are thinking of IPOing much later, I say in five years or something, when their financials get better, they're tempted to IPO now. But I think going through a SPAC actually makes sense for them because it shortens the process, it shortens the paperwork, mm -hmm. the SPAC you know, partner has a lot of expertise. It makes a smoother transition. They're not so much in this, in this spotlight of all of their financials. And, and if I was a startup like that, hey, SPAC, yeah, SPAC it, you know, like it could be a great opportunity to do so and secure some funding, a higher valuation. So in that sense, it makes sense. I think um, there are going to be some SPAC, some companies that do very well that actually, you know, they were destined to IPO five years, but they IPO'd early. And maybe in a market correction, we can pick up some of these, you know, great companies kind of at depressed prices and we can see a five or 10X yeah. um, in a reasonable amount of time. There are going to be companies like, especially in the EV space, who are just pumped up right now, you know, like Lordstown and a bunch of others um, that, um, that I don't know, you know, they just, they don't seem viable as a business uh, in the future. And so um, it's interesting. I, I, like, I think it's an opportunity uh, on, the, on, the, on the short side at the right time. I don't know what the exact right time is, but it's something I've been thinking about just um, in a market correction or at a certain point, perhaps this bubble of, EV, this EV bubble where they think all these companies are gonna do well, right? That just isn't the reality. <laughs> at a certain point, people are gonna realize that it's not easy to make an EV company. Um, yeah, and, 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 and there will be, I think, some type of sell-off. Yeah, for sure. I think it's, it's healthy for the market. I think right now, a lot of people think they can get rich pretty, pretty quick, especially now with yeah. the whole GameStop saga going on. But it started already last year when everything went up after the crash in March, the EV stocks went up 5, 10x, 20x even, pretty crazy. So I think having a little correction or maybe a bigger one is probably good for the market and will probably be good for investors for the longer term that will pick up some, some stocks that are cheaper after a crash than before. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, market corrections are part of the cycle. It's part of the market. You know, the market's constantly adjusting. I mean, that's the power of the market where it will, you know, it's this, the market is larger than any single player in the market because we're talking about trillions and trillions of dollars just exchanging just super fast. 
across thousands and thousands of companies and different instruments. And in that sense, when you look at the role of a market correction, it's, it's the market is constantly adjusting and sometimes it adjusts a little bit, sometimes it over adjusts, right? And there's different ways and it's so awesome and um, grand to think about how much even market or, or investor psychology and sentiment and media, all of this plays a part with the market dynamics too. Um, so in a lot of ways, like the more I think people grasp all of the factors of how the market moves, they could take a step back to try to understand the psychology of the markets a little bit better. So when there is a huge correction, the big question is, is this just a correction or is this the beginning of the end? Yeah. <laughs> is this like <laughs> going down all the way? And so at that time you can make that you know, assessment and that's where I think huge, huge fortunes are made, you know, where you can make the correct assessment. I mean, and opportunities are lost also with incorrect assessments and nothing's guaranteed either. Right. I mean, could be making mistakes as well. So it's, sure. it's a part of all of the fascinating, it's part of the fascinating, you know, game of investing or the picture of investing. Yeah. No, it, at the end of the day, it is a big, a big game. Those who are playing the game for a longer term tend to outwin the the people that play the game for a short term yeah